Let me take you back to December 2012. I was just beginning what would be a two and a half year odyssey of working in one state, California, while my family resided in another state, Montana, and I myself resided in yet another state of being. Namely, where on earth am I today? And what the hell happened to my life to bring me here? Loss of job, loss of community, led to this surprising and perplexing and daunting season of life. I spent one of my first days off, Mondays, making my first visit to Mendocino on the Northern California coast. I meandered my way to Mendocino Headlands Park, which is a section of rocky cliffs on the coastline. I stopped at the first turnoff, parked my car, and walked down a narrow path through a wooded glen and out onto an expanse overlooking the Pacific. I continue on the trail as it meanders along a bluff, the cliff of which is 60 feet down to the ocean beneath. And the path and the cliff gets narrower and narrower and narrower as I head towards the point. Once I get out to the point, it isn't wider than about six feet across. And yet somehow miraculously, the stone shapes there form a kind of chair. And so I very, very hesitantly and carefully make a step further out towards the edge and I very gently sit down in my stone chair. And within a few seconds, tears leap from my eyes and I begin sobbing uncontrollably. The emotions are so raw and so visceral and uncontainable and uncontrollable, they just start pouring out of me. I'm sitting with an unobstructed view of the Pacific Ocean. I'm on this kind of a stone throne in this sacred cathedral, a space that for me is the most sacred space on earth. And the wind is whipping the waves into a fury. And my hooded sweatshirt is filling up with the air so much so that I think I'm going to be raised off of the stone and out over the waters like one of the birds that's circling around me. The waves are crashing into the rocks below. The salt spray is surging up over the cliff and drenching my hoodie and stinging my eyes. And through all of that, all of that, the wind and the waves are drowning out what has become a primal scream from the depths deep within me that I didn't even know were there. The shame and rage, the confusion, the frustration, losing a job in a community, being separated from my family on again, off again, And my heart is pouring out this holy kind of howl. The torrents of tears are pouring down my cheeks and onto this hardened and yet kind of hallowed earth beneath me. 
it's all merging with the salt and the air and the mist. And it's kind of this offering of oppression, this oblation of frustration, this lament of longing, a hey you for healing, a hymn for help, a plea for peace, an intercession for incarnation, a yelling for Yahweh. I'm sitting atop this cliff of insanity, searching and screaming for the return of my sanity, the restoration of my truest self. Psalm 88 arises out of the depths of this kind of despair. The despair when you reach the end of your rope. When you feel like you've hit the rock bottom of the pit. The last resort. The end of the land. Walter Brueggemann once commented that Psalm 88 is an embarrassment to conventional faith. Why is that? I wonder if it's because it's an expression of pure emotion. Pure emotion that presupposes no easy answers. There's no easy answers to account for the experience of God's absence in suffering. It describes what it's like to experience suffering head on and to live through the deep questions that arise out of that suffering, rather than grasping at those proverbial straws in the form of speculative attempts to rationalize or philosophize some attempt at answers. Answers such as this. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer, not to love is to suffer, to suffer is to suffer, to be happy is to love. Therefore, to be happy then is to suffer, but suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be unhappy, one must love or love to suffer or suffer from too much happiness. That from the great philosopher Woody Allen. The psalmist here acknowledges all aspects of suffering, physical, emotional, relational, vocational, spiritual, and uses these multiple vivid images to express the breadth and the depth of that suffering, spiraling down to eventually laying out an all points assault of blame, not just on circumstances, not just on friends or companions, but ultimately on God. The God whom the psalmist says has led him into and left him abandoned in the deepest darkness imaginable. All psalms no matter how dark, always eventually turn to some pinprick of light and hope. All except this one. It's the only one. 
And many psalms use the image of lifting up hands in praise and celebration. But this one really is more like throwing up our hands in frustration and not immediately looking for some kind of silver lining of hope, which leaves the psalmist in unresolved tension and pain and leaves us there too. And even though Jesus' words from the cross recorded in the Gospel of Mark are quoting Psalm 22, I wonder if this is the psalm that was in the deeper recesses of his mind and heart and spirit when he cried out in utter abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Interestingly, in Mark's account, These are the last recorded words of Jesus before he dies. There's no, it is accomplished, or into your hands I commit my spirit. Just abandonment and forsakenness. So why is this so uncomfortable for us to sit in this place of tension If you're anything like me, perhaps part of the reason is because we almost innately and intuitively avoid suffering. And in a culture like ours, that can lead almost to an inability to enter into suffering. I mean, often I find it so hard to accept and articulate my suffering which leads to denial. I pretend it isn't there. I rationalize. I repress. That, in turn, opens me up to the reality that I find it hard to enter into the suffering of others, which leads me from denial to fixing. Let me solve your problem. Let me make you feel better. Let's fix this suffering somehow. How does that work for you? It usually doesn't work very well for me. And that sense of fixing then compounds and snowballs into this sense of projecting, searching for an enemy to blame for the suffering. But in this psalm, while you see hints of all of those actions, Ultimately, not unlike Jesus on the cross, nothing is denied, nothing is projected because nothing can be fixed. Both the psalm and the words of Jesus are a stark reminder that in life, in the words of that powerful song by the group REM, lyrics written by Bill Berry, their drummer, What is it about us drummers? Everybody hurts. Everybody hurts sometimes. The psalm and the words of Jesus and the words of this song remind us that there are times where all we can do is simply acknowledge this reality and sit in the silent, unresolved, uncomfortable, 
excruciating tension without looking for some kind of spark of wisdom or hope to emerge from it. And again, I loop back around, why? Why is this somehow beneficial to our lives? And then I think of the experience of Jesus. The one who accepted and articulated his suffering. Which led to a deeper and broader embracing and entering into and even taking on the suffering of others. Which then led to an even more universal embodying of divine love for all people and all of creation. As Marcel Proust wrote in the quote on the cover of your bulletin, we are healed of a suffering only by experiencing it to the full. In more modern language, the only way out of suffering is through it. And perhaps maybe that's a hint of insight as to why a psalm like this exists in our scriptures and tradition. And why when we come to a table of communion, we are not coming to a table of denial or fixing or escape or some pie in the sky pretending or rationalizing. Friends, that first communion table was a table of suffering leading unto death. And it was a table prepared and set in love. It was set as a safe and welcoming place for all people, regardless of where your life has taken you or where your life is or where your life is going a safe and welcoming space to acknowledge and experience and articulate our suffering in full. And like the psalmist crying out to the God who is not there, crying out in isolation within a community of others. A community of others who are present and know what it's like to suffer to be reminded and encouraged that everybody hurts sometimes. Even the one who set the first table in love. And so the invitation to come and to share in this experience of communion is not an invitation to come and have all your problems solved or to solve the world's problems. It is a table of welcome and understanding and solidarity. Not only with your own suffering and my own suffering and our collective suffering, but with the suffering of our broader community, our city, our country, our world, the planet itself that is suffering. And to know in that experience of abandonment and isolation and forsakenness 
that we can still cry out to the God who isn't there. Do you see the irony of that? If God isn't there, then why is the psalmist crying out? Whether your experience today is that no divine manifestation of anything is anywhere near you, or whether you are sensing God's rhythm in your body and being like your next heartbeat, or like most of us, somewhere in between those two, the invitation is come. Come just as you are, right where you are. There's no distinction of gender or sexuality or religion or belief or life experience. The table simply is for all of us who simply are.